and welcome to Opinionated Science, the podcast from Technology Networks. I'm Rory McKenzie, a senior science writer here at TN, and I'm delighted to be hosting this episode of Opinionated Science. On this podcast, we discuss the latest weird and wonderful science that has barged its way into our respective inboxes over the last few weeks. To go through that, I'm joined on this podcast by a massive three of my wonderful TN colleagues, Karen Stewart, Molly Campbell and Kate Robinson. How are you all? Good, thanks, Rory. Great, thanks. All good here. Great, got full house of goodness. Excellent. So on this week's podcast, we're going to take a look at a bunch of interesting research, including uh, a study that's decoded the grunts of pigs. We're going to find out what we can learn about de-extincting animals from the Christmas Island rat. And we're even going to discover some unique challenges that sushi poses to your gut microbiome. But first, it's time for another story from Lab Confidential. Every lab has its tales of oh shit moments where fire alarms are set off, samples end up stored in the beer cooler, or a promising PhD student is caught smoking weed in the fume hood. These are the tales which everyone has, but no one wants to share publicly. The true mythos of science, but one that has to remain on the down low, unless we can share it here. Welcome back to Lab Confidential. Each episode, we're going to take the best stories our listeners send in via text or voice note and read them to reveal the secrets of what goes on behind the scenes in your average lab. Our story this time comes from Liam, who is sharing a story that occurred during a postgrad research position. Thank you very much for sending this in, Liam. Liam writes, Late night immunology experiments are never particularly fun. But one multi-hour flow cytometry protocol got turned upside down when a completely unforecast torrential rain shower caught me on my cycle to the lab. I considered turning back and giving up on the day's experiments, but it was crunch time in the bid to get some much needed results for a paper. So I ended up arriving at the lab so soaked that I might as well have swam there. It was late and the building was quiet, so there was no one around to see me drip my way to the staff room where I created large puddles next to the coffee machine. Stealing myself, I went into my lab, still totally drenched. The lab was equipped with tens of thousands of dollars of equipment, a fridge full of rare staining antibodies, and absolutely no towels whatsoever. After a couple of particularly grim moments where I attempted to dry myself with green paper tissues to no effect, I decided to take matters into my own hands and make some changes to my working environment to maximise my efficiency and minimise my dampness, which in hindsight may have been a symptom of the water actually entering my brain as well as soaking into my clothes. As it happened, there was another person in the building with me that evening. Out of all the labs on our floor and all the people in those labs, it was my postdoc who had turned up for God knows what reason at 7.30pm. Walking along the corridor, he noticed that the window to our lab space had been covered up with carefully hung lab coats and cardboard packaging. Rather than deciding to ignore this admittedly rather odd development, my postdoc strode into the lab to find me, wearing only boxers and a lab coat, halfway through a perpetuating ordeal. We exchanged a glance. In a sign of true leadership and mettle, my postdoc rather than lobbing me out the window or looking up the ethical stance of our university on indecent dress in the workplace, simply asked me how long I had to go until deadline. Three days, I replied. He weighed up the situation, told me not to do it again, and left me to my delirious, half-naked end-of-year pipetting party. I got the bus to the lab for the rest of the year. 
Oh, thank you, Liam, for that. Uh, I'd say wonderful, but upsettingly visual story. Do we um, have any have any tales of un unusual outfits in the labs? Anyone? Oh, that's brilliant. It made me laugh so much. I was so glad I was on mute. What he needed was a warm room. So every yeah. room, yeah, would have been perfect. Mm -hmm. But you know, if you've not got one of those, can't say it's something I would do personally, but I can see his logic. Only other option is to climb in the minus 70 and freeze it all and then chip it all off with a nice pick, isn't it? Yeah, <laughs> might be a little bit refreshing. Yeah, um, I mean, it's a real problem solving there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a bit of creativity. We love it. Uh, please do keep sending in your lab confidential stories. We really look forward to hearing more secrets of the lab. But we can now move on to our research studies for the week. And uh, Who'd like to who'd like to kick us off? Karen, would you like to maybe tell us about uh, the secrets of sushi in the gut? Mm, sure. So I think probably by now most people understand to some degree that the microbes that are in our gut are really important in enabling us to digest our food effectively, as we ourselves lack a lot of the enzymes that are needed to break down things like dietary fibre, for example. So if we have the right balance of the right microbes with the right properties to suit our diets, then our digestion can work effectively. But if we don't, it can cause digestive issues and also prevent us from obtaining the nutrients that are actually available in the food we're eating. Now, we don't just get a set of microbes when we're born and that's that's it. It's very much a dynamic process. Um, our gut microbes are ever changing and they reflect not only our diet, but also our state of health. So when we become ill, uh, pathogenic microbes may outcompete our good bugs. Or, for example, if we have antimicrobial therapy to treat an infection in one area of our body, we may inadvertently end up killing off some of our gut bacteria as well. So it's one of the reasons there's so much interest in things like probiotics and poo transplants to help artificially help us obtain or um, re-obtain re the microbes that we need for a healthy gut. But what happens if we change our diet and introduce something novel that our gut bacteria aren't adapted to, haven't seen before? So that's where the study that I want to discuss today comes in. So a multi-centred team of scientists led by um, a group at the University of Michigan Medical School have been looking at how seaweed in our diet has impacted our gut microbiome. Now you might think seaweed, well that's a plant, so we eat loads of plants, so what's the problem? But many of the cold water seaweeds that are used in the human food chain for things like sushi wrappers, for example, don't contain the same carbohydrates as their land-based counterparts. They contain polysaccharides like alginate, laminarin, agarose, carrageenan, and a complex carbohydrate called porphyrin. Now, they aren't broken down in the same way that the carbohydrates in fruit and vegetables are because they have different, different chemical structures and therefore they require different enzymes. <clears throat> but if we look to the ocean, however, there are some marine bacteria that are able to break down these carbohydrates, which is really important for the carbon cycle as well. So just over a decade ago, researchers from the University of Pierre and Marie Curie in Paris found genes from marine bacteria encoding enzymes that enable breakdown of one of these carbohydrates, porphyrin, in the gut microbes from a Japanese adult. So this suggests that these genes have somehow made their way from the ocean dwelling bacteria into gut bacteria. But bacteria are able to swap their genes through a process called lateral gene transfer which is most likely how the marine bacterial genes came to be in a human gut microbe. However, we don't know exactly how it got there. Uh, did it in encounter 
the encounter happen in the gut, you know, through ad inadvertent consumption, or was there a more complex path from A to B? No one really knows. But these things don't normally happen for no reason. There's normally a driving force. So it's been assumed that consumption of seaweed in human diets has likely been the selective pressure that's been driving the transfer of these genes into human gut microbes. In the latest study, scientists wanted to see how prevalent these gene clusters then enable us to digest seaweed have become. So among the most prevalent species of gut bacteria are Bacteroides, Firmicutes and Actinobacteria. And all of these groups are associated with polysaccharide degradation. So this is where they started looking. Now the team gathered stool samples, not the most glamorous job in the world, has to be said, um, from healthy adults, plus also some animal samples. And this resulted in 354 bacterial isolates, mostly Bacteroides, um, that were then cultured and tested for their ability to use various different seaweed polysaccharides as a food source. They then went on to identify the genes involved in this degradation and study the potential mechanisms of the transfer of these genes and then characterize some of the key enzymes involved. So they found that the ability to use laminarin was broadly represented across many of the isolates, which is quite interesting. However, as well as being in seaweed, laminarin is also present in many other plants and fungi. So actually the ability of our gut microbes to break it down is probably more likely to be linked to the fact that a lot of us have oats and whole grains in our diet. Um, so laminarin aside, anyway, the team identified 33 bacteroides and three firmicutes that were able to utilize one or more of the other seaweed polysaccharides tested. So the second most prevalent was the ability to utilize alginate and a gene cluster that had already been identified from genome sequences that's known to associate with alginate degradation was found to be upregulated when the strains were grown in alginate. Utilisation of porphyrin, agarose and carrageenan was less common amongst the samples of these test subjects. Now, genome sequencing once again was used to identify gene clusters that are associated with nutrient degradation abilities. The team next looked at likely transfer mechanisms and they had managed to identify multiple gene transfer events and also evidence of mobile genetic elements that were actively able to transfer these gene clusters between bacterial species or strains. So this is demonstrating this is likely an ongoing and dynamic process, not something that's been fixed you know, many, many eons ago. So armed with this information, the team then also looked at metagenomic data from human faecal samples from 2,440 individuals that are spread across North and South America, Europe and Asia, and they found some really interesting results. So consistent with consumption of seaweeds containing carrageenan going back millennia in, in Asia, the genes for its utilisation were significantly more prevalent in samples from Chinese and Japanese subjects. Samples from Europe, interestingly, showed a much lower prevalence, but it's really important to note that the European samples only came from Spain and Denmark, and they don't have a history of eating seaweed, unlike places like Ireland or Scotland. So the, if we were looking at the Irish or Scottish population, the picture might be very different. Interestingly, also, there were no uh, seaweed associated gene clusters found in any of the subjects from Africa. So something else that was quite interesting to note, the, the, the genes for degrading carrageenan were enriched in samples from the USA. So in the USA, carrageenan is now widely used as a food additive for anything from baby formula to oat milk as a thickener and to emulsify and preserve foods and drinks. 
So whilst it still isn't exactly clear how the genes are getting from the marine bacteria into our gut bacteria, it's quite interesting to note that firmicutes are also known to live in fish intestines and appear to host the closest ancestors of these genes that have appeared in human gut uh, firmicutes, which may give us a clue as to where they might be coming from. So all in all, as well as answering many questions about the prevalence and the transit of genes that enable us to digest specific foods and the adaptability of our gut bacteria to meet the changing nutritional availability, the studies open some really interesting questions about the complex network of interactions. Personally, I'd be really interested to see if we were able to look at over the decades and over the centuries around the world and see how the gene prevalence has changed and the geographical spread uh, in relation to people's changing diets. Um, but I guess the problem with a historical snapshot like that is a lack of samples. I think it would be a really, really interesting study to do, though. In any case, so next time you uh, tuck into some sushi roll or try something new and unusual, just spare a thought for those adaptable, adaptable little guys that are hanging around in your gut. <laughs> That's great, Karen. I, I, I always think, you know, if you can, like you say, difficult to do the historical comparison. Yeah. If you look at the... The gut bacteria from certainly Western Europe 500 years ago, it must be, you know, the most vanilla setup compared to the <laughs> the wild riot you must have in your traditional Absolutely. one here with all these different cuisines smashing together. Yeah. Um, you know, it, it's it, it's it's really, you know, no wonder that we we still seem to suffer as a as a species from so many different, you know, gastrointestinal complaints that we don't understand. It must be so hard yeah. to get any kind of reliable information when the variation is so high between different populations, eh? Absolutely. I mean, even if you take a set of adults or individuals living in a household, um, eating the same food, you know, living the same life, experiencing the same environment, and they can have completely different gut microbiomes. So yeah, there's just there are so many potential confounding factors and things in those kind of studies. It just blows my mind. <laughs> but it's it's just so interesting how much of an influence your your microbiome can have on your health and your ability to digest food. Are you talking about historical data and things? I think even the difference in the diet that we have now in our generation, especially in the UK, it's very very. I would say our our food culture is very global. Um, but if you take that compared to our grandparents' generation. You know, oh, yeah, it was very much you know, meat and two veg, got your potatoes. Yeah. It's just, yeah, it's so different. I think it's really interesting. Absolutely. Just, uh, yeah, speaking of Scottish seaweed eating, I was just revert to eating, yeah, seaweed and haddock and oats for the rest of my life and see what happens to my, <laughs> my microbiome. Um, but thanks for sharing with us, Karen. Uh, You're welcome. Kate, I know you've got a really interesting study as well today about uh, decoding the grunts of pigs. I'd like to hear more about this. Yeah, um, so like how are pigs feeling? Asher, I would like to know. Um, so there's <laughs> recently been a bit of a increase in the general interest of livestock well-being and how our foods and the livestocks are raised and how that impacts the product on the, the shelf. Um, and so in my study, researchers from the University of Copenhagen set out to determine pigs' emotions using their grunts. Um, the researchers used over 7,000 audio recordings of over 400 pigs in varying situations throughout their lives and then designed an algorithm with these audio recordings 
um, that can interpret what kind of emotion that pig is experiencing. Um, so in order to get these audio recordings, they had to, there was commercial and experimental scenarios that they put the pigs in. Um, but obviously to design them, they had to figure out what general emotion were associated with different scenarios. So they did that by observing natural behavior of pigs in certain scenarios. Um, and pigs that were experiencing negative emotions were found to kind of stand still, either be like very vocal or try and escape. Um, and those that were feeling positive will like be, have that ears forwards and they'll be more explorative. So then they had those positive uh, situations that included huddling with their little mates, suckling, being reunited with their family um, after separation. And then the negative situations, which were being separated, um, fighting, misnursing, um, and the nastier ones of like waiting in the slaughterhouse. And those were the commercial scenarios. They also had experimental ones, which were um, having pigs in an unfamiliar, like setting a location that was a, it was like a experimental stable and they either had unfamiliar objects in there, um, with pigs having toys and food or in another one they had just, it was just empty. And so they were like, those situations were for more like nuanced emotions rather than just negative or positive, it's those kind of in-betweens. Um, and during all of the scenarios, they were recording the audio um, behavior, and then sometimes they did record the heart rate. So from those scenarios, they had uh, over 4,000 audio recordings that were analyzed. And from, the, the, from that, they found that um, in negative situations, the pigs produce more high frequency calls, like screams and squeals. But in both positive and negative, they did produce low frequency calls like grunts as well. But only in the positive situations did they have like really short calls. And from that, the, the researchers said that the algorithm was correctly used to identify 92% of pig calls to a certain emotion. Um, and the kind of idea behind the algorithm is that maybe someone could develop it into an app for farmers and they could um, see like how the pigs or whatever were feeling and improve the welfare. Um, but it kind of made me think, you know, imagine if they, there was something similar for like cats or something, because I would love to know if my cat was going to bite us. <laughs> it would be really beneficial, something like that. <laughs> I uh, yeah, and I, I really feel that it would cut a lot of complexity and confusion out of the human experience if we just grunted happily, oh, yeah. <laughs> shortly every time we had a positive emotion. I think that would really cut out a lot of confusion. Um, but yeah, I, I, isn't it? It really surprises me. I think that's my first reaction. Is kind of surprised that this kind of thing hasn't been considered before. I mean, obviously mm -hmm. you got technology now, which makes it a bit easier to to analyze this kind of data. But uh, it seems the most important thing you could do, you know, even if you're just looking at it from a commercial standpoint, is to make sure the, the animals in, in your livestock have the best lives possible and the happiest lives possible. So it's, it's good to see that they're 
they're taking a, a technological approach to it because there's obviously all this data here you can analyze. Yeah, definitely. I'm also imagining some kind of like office style documentary setup with them in pig farms <laughs> or a massive boom mic stuck in all these pigs' faces for hours on end. Oh, yeah. Uh, I'm just thinking of the film. Do you remember Babe Pig in the City? Oh, my oh God, yeah. yeah. That's such a good film. film. <laughs> <laughs> I think it needs to be reimagined now with this technology. Yeah. Exactly. Redubbed. <laughs> yeah. Get new audio in. Authentic <laughs> pig actors. So we have time for one more study, and Molly, I believe uh, I just love this study idea using a Christmas rat to as an example of how to and how not to de-extinct species. Please tell us more about this. Yeah, absolutely. So um, this research actually also comes out of the University of Copenhagen. So big up the University of Copenhagen. Um, busy, busy, busy. Uh, yeah, <laughs> our readers might remember um, a few months ago, I think I actually talked about the extinction, perhaps on the podcast, but if not, um, I wrote an article about it, which we can link in the, the description. And basically, the extinction is, well, it sounds a bit like science fiction, but it's actually becoming a more likely reality and it's the idea that if we can sequence the genome of an extinct species, we can use modern genomic technologies to essentially resurrect that organism or a version of it. So perhaps not the identical organism, but some kind of hybrid with another creature. And there's a really kind of fast growing area of research surrounding this. So originally I, I spoke about Colossal, which is a company that was co-founded by Professor George Church. Um, if our listeners don't know who he is, we can also link to um, an interview that we did with him recently. And he's essentially known as being the godfather of genetics to many. And this biotech company Colossal have gathered Originally, it was $15 million to create a version of the extinct woolly mammoth. However, I actually got an email through the other day that was saying the funding has now increased to $60 million. So Whoa. that's one example. Yeah, I know. So that's kind of one example of a de-extinction project, but there's quite a few more across the world. So the University of Melbourne has actually announced it was given a gift of $5 million to establish a laboratory that's dedicated to quote-unquote resurrecting the thylacine which was the Tasmanian tiger and there's other projects too that focus on perhaps kind of smaller creatures so there's a profit a non-profit organization called Revive and Restore and they plan to re resurrect the passenger pigeon to the forests of the US so there's all these kind of really interesting projects mm -hmm. going on all kind of at different stages of development. And so this research area is very, very interesting to follow. However, I think it goes without saying there are some limitations to it. There's some concerns both on the scientific side and for the kind of societal considerations. And so a professor at the University of Copenhagen named Tom Gilbert, he's really, really interested in this concept and the technology involved. So I should mention that the fact that we can quote unquote resurrect 
extinct animals. As I say, it relies on us having this kind of genome sequence for extinct animals. But there are a couple of proposed ways to do it. So one way is backbreeding. Another is cloning. So we might have heard of Dolly the sheep from the 90s. And the third way is genetic engineering, which is kind of, I'd say, the more popular approach these days, just because the technology is so much more accurate than, than previous methods. So Professor Tom Gilbert was kind of looking at this situation, this landscape of re-extinction, sorry, de-extinction research. And he was thinking, well, you know, this sounds really, really cool, but when we're focusing on the science, is this actually a feasible thing to do? Or is it a case of we have methods whereby we think it could work, but actually the reality is that there's going to be some limitations that prevent us from kind of going through with it. So he decided to conduct a study that would model the situation of de-extincting a creature. So just to emphasise, Professor Gilbert, we had a conversation and he said to me the focus of the study wasn't to, you know, actually resurrect, quote unquote, um, the organism, but he wanted to think about the potential limitations surrounding resurrecting it. And the organism is called the Christmas Island rat. Um, it went extinct between 1898 and 1908. And Professor Gilbert's a fan of the Christmas rat. Um, rats are obviously used quite a lot in scientific research, so we know quite a lot about their genetics. And also the Christmas rats has a genome sequence available. And so it was easy to access to kind of analyse the genomic sequence of this extinct organism. So essentially what Professor Gilbert did was take a look at the reference genome that we have for the Christmas Island rat and compare it to kind of its closest living species, which there are a couple of examples of the same species, but he compared it particularly to the Norway brown rat. What he found was that actually 5% of the genome for the Christmas Island rat is not attainable, essentially unrecoverable. And so in that region, there's almost, there's 1,661 genes that were recoverable and 26 that were completely absent. So what he's done essentially is compared the genome sequence that he has for the Christmas Island right against this reference genome and there's genes missing. And some of these genes are really important. So they I mean, all genes are important, of course, but these ones are implicated in they believe the Christmas Island rat's sense of smell. And so what this means is that hypothetically, if you were to use that genome sequence that we have available and take those genes, insert them into a living relative of the Christmas Island rat, such as the Norway rat, what you would find is that likely the hybrid creature that you've created wouldn't necessarily process smell in the same physiological way that the Christmas Island rat did. So Professor Gilbert kind of says, you know, this is a drawback now, but never say never. It could be that perhaps one day they find a sample of a frozen Christmas Island rat that's been buried in um, ice and perfectly preserved so that all of its DNA can be collected, analysed once again. And that could perhaps change the picture. But Professor Gilbert wasn't wasn't so sure. It was just a really interesting study because he kind of runs through some of the potential limitations of the actual method itself. And then also, as I say, the wider issues surrounding the extinction. 
and his stance is very much of you know if money wasn't an issue and there was a finite uh, sorry there wasn't you know a a limited amount of funding for scientific research then yeah by all means this is something that's quite cool to do there are various reasons why we might want to do it um kind of looking at the biodiversity crisis that the world is facing right now but from an ethical standpoint right now Professor Gilbert was very much of the stance of it's perhaps not the best use of money that we have in the world right now and obviously there are so many living species that are under threat that perhaps research resources should be directed to them but mm. it was just a really interesting study I just felt it was really important and you know we're having all these kind of biotech companies um, working in de-extinction and it, it sounds it sounds grandeur and I think it's quite interesting how Professor Gilbert kind of went back to quite a simplistic model organism compared to you know the woolly mammoth and kind of said right well if we're looking at this this creature a rat could we resurrect the rat and essentially at this point no if we can't resurrect a rat does that mean we we can necessarily resurrect the mm -hmm. woolly mammoth you know so yeah just a really really cool one I, I implore people to kind of go and research a little bit more about the extinction and what its potential implications are Thanks, Molly. Yeah, we'll definitely um, include your your article from a few months back on, on George Church's efforts because it is it is good to get that context. And yeah, it's also good to have a kind of I guess a reality check with this kind of research because it is very exciting to read about. You know, bringing back a a long dead animal. It's very Jurassic Park of of everyone. But at the same time, it's you know um, it's important to remember that yeah, we have as you say a, a lot of animals out there right now that are still just about not extinct and. We, uh, they could sure use a lot of money to help keep them going rather than try and bring back other animals from the dead. But uh, can I just can I just double check that the Christmas Island rat isn't just a regular rat in a little Santa suit? Because that really I, is what comes to mind. Yeah, well, Google would lead you to believe that if you oh. Google image Christmas Island rat, you will come across a rat with a Santa hat on. So I'll well. for everyone to check that out. But but no, it, it's not a festive version of the the classic rap <laughs> i think society could you know for the for the money we're putting into these studies putting it into just getting some cute santa hats for existing animals and putting them on them that would be i think a, a more sensible use of money but um, but in all seriousness no it's an absolutely fascinating uh, piece of research and uh, yeah it is it's hard to get a grasp on on these things sometimes because i, I know that for example church's efforts with the um with the mammoth, you know, he obviously proposed that it would be a, a an excellent animal to try and resurrect the biodiversity of the of the tundra. But it's hard to get a grasp on, you know. That's obviously it's just a hypothetical, isn't it? You know, they don't know that for certain, uh, and it's hard to get a grasp on what's something that could actually provide a real tangible benefit to our world today, and what's just as you you say, kind of marquee luxury science that people are kind of just doing because wh why not, you know? Yeah, absolutely. There's also the kind of the consideration of, you know, you're bringing back an extinct species, but that that creature's environment no longer exists. Mm -hmm. So how do you go about ensuring that it has kind of the resources that it needs to survive, the habitats, the, you know, different hierarchical structures within its environment? It, how can you predict that? It's yeah, there's so mm -hmm. much to think about that. It does surprise me that there is so much funding that is you know, being able to be generated for 
this work. But yeah, it's cool to see where it might go. Absolutely. Park never ended well. Yeah, this <laughs> didn't. It didn't. I I would you know seeing Jeff Goldblum trying to coax a rat with a Christmas hat on to you know stop eating his friends or whatever. That's a, a film I would definitely pay to see. Um, if that's a potential option for future Jur Jurassic Park, Jurassic Park, anyone? Okay, I'm going to stop there. Puns are coming out. Uh, we've had plenty amazing science today. Thank you to all three of you for your fantastic stories. And I'm looking forward to hearing even more weird, wonderful science on the next Opinionated Science. But until then, a big thanks to all of you, as well as to our audience. And wherever you are listening, as always, please like, share and subscribe to our podcast. And please do let us know what you think. Don't keep your opinions to yourself. Goodbye for now.